clubhouse. We must begin. This is Mita Delmonico's The Alienist Podcast. I'm Mike Caputo. Hi, I'm Sheila McGann. Tonight, we're talking about the season two premiere of Alienist, The Angel of Darkness season, Ex Ore Infantium. For you kids who have forgotten your Latin, that means out of the mouth of babes. Ex Ore Infantium was a teleplay by Stuart Carolan and directed by David Caffrey. Does it count as a season two if they add a colon subtitle or is it like a just a different entry in the show? It has a different feel than the first one. So I guess it gets its own semicolon moniker. It's like a Mission Impossible movie. Mission Impossible, you know, the ghost protocol. Ghost protocol. (laughs) When you're up to killing babies and possibly two in an episode, yeah, you've entered a next level of kind of doom and gloom. Man, this one was hard to watch, friend. I mean, it's been away for so long and I was so happy to see it back. But this was like a, wow, just slapping you across the face left and right with the doom and gloom. They're really doubling down on the semi-horror nature of it all. Yeah, it's like, hello, we're back. Killing babies. Miss us? (laughs) What were your general thoughts about this episode just as far as TV goes? Oh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I I liked how disorienting it felt, like, you know, just bringing you back into the macabre world of Laszlo Kreitzler and his band of merry alienists or not so merry alienists i guess yeah i felt it was really disorienting they you know talking about like the the real history of the show is something that i generally appreciate this show was this season rather is starting off ripe with that with the spanish-american war and having the electrocution of martha in the very beginning you know the, there's a, a historical timeline for that that's pretty accurate so yeah uh i'm, I'm happy to have it back I, it feels like it's been longer than january of last year but i'm just happy to have it back just bringing it in the way that they did it was like hello we're here we're back january 22nd 2018 was the season premiere of episode one of season one so i had the january right i was just off by a whole year that's how long ago it has been yeah, I, I knew insane. it felt longer i just didn't think it was a whole nother year but i did remember january have you read read the sequel novel, the Angel of Darkness novel by Caleb Carr that the season presumably is going to be based on? I did not. I did not know that there was a sequel. I'm excited. I didn't know. They, they call it the, the Chrysler series. And I know there's at least one other book after this uh, in Angel of Darkness, but I don't know how much Chrysler actually is in that book. I, I've never read it. I'm only halfway through Angel of Darkness. I had read the first one before The Alienist ever aired. And then I reread it for season one because I, I recapped it over on Pop Culture Review. I did the written recaps for the whole season. I was big invested into the show from the get-go. And I just never got around to reading Angel of Darkness. I had read that it wasn't as good as the first one. I had read it was good. It wasn't as good as the first one. I was so exhausted from covering the show and being living in this world eight weeks when it aired. I just kind of put it on my shelf and never got around to it. But now I'm getting around to it. So I'm in the middle of the book. That being said, this is going to be a no book spoiler cast. No, I don't want to be spoiled. And, you know, sometimes they have to adapt things for TV and it just has to hew a little bit differently from how the book goes just for timing and structure and things like that. I agree with that 100%. Though, that being said, season one actually was a really good adaptation to the book. They really didn't change very much and, and not a whole lot of like big stuff. My recollection is it actually, it actually stayed really faithful to the book. Even if you haven't read the book, Hopefully season two will feel like you've read the book. I I like that you mentioned the Spanish-American War because the growing tension that's palpable in this episode seems like it's going to serve as a backdrop for this whole season, which I'm really excited about. The Spanish-American War, no one really ever talks about it. it. It'll eventually break out in April of 1898 about nine months from where we are now at the start of this episode. But you're seeing the groundwork being laid in the background and really serving as a as a backdrop, especially with Linares and their connection to the Spanish delegation living in New York at the time. It's going to be interesting. I, I really enjoy the historical aspects of this show. Give me a period piece in any way, shape or form. And the way that the first season panned itself out, it was so accurate to the time and to the historical events that were going on. So that gives the show a little bit more even credibility 
if you want, even though it's it's based on a book. But having the accuracy in it, like having, you know, Teddy Roosevelt as the police commissioner in the first uh, season and now having him, you know, as uh, assistant secretary to the Navy, he was appointed that in April of 1897. So they are really on the mark. They get major props for that for me. The show has always done such a good, good job of citing things in New York for the New York that existed at the time, you know, things like, you know, like the Tenderloin and, and all of the places that we visited last year, all the places that, that still exist today, but called something different back in 1896 uh, in the first season. They were so faithful for it. And it was one of my favorite things about doing the recaps for the show was going and researching the things that they talked about, the places that they visited. You and I are both lifelong New Yorkers. The city holds a special place for both of us. And so getting to see a show that so accurately represents the history of the city at least for me anyway, it really resonates maybe more so than either for people like, you know, if you live in Iowa, maybe you don't really give a fuck what New York City was like in 1897. But for me, I really do give a fuck. So I think it's awesome. Same. Big history fan here. And that was actually one of my favorite parts of the recaps that you did on Pop Culture Review was the blurbs about the history of the episode that played out and just exploring that. So I really enjoyed that part of it as well. So I'm glad that we're we're kind of keeping to that here in the live, you know, talky-talky version of the recaps. We've gotten audio in this day and age, people. We are bringing the history to the show. Each episode, hopefully, knock on wood, will have a little history corner at the end of it. And tonight will be no different. We're not going to necessarily cover every single person that's a real historical figure. We're not going to talk about every real place that they go to. But the stuff that I found interesting and, and that really panned out, I think it helps bring you into the world of the show more. It helps invest you into the show more when you know the context that they're talking about. Agree. Uh, before we get started, and I don't know how you feel about this, and this may be a hot take. This may be, people may be slamming off their podcasts when I say this. I love Luke Evans. I think he's a great actor. I love him. The character of John Moore is such a fucking waste. This show would still be as good as it was if John Moore didn't exist. I know he's a character in the book, so obviously he has to be here, but he is just such a wet blanket. He drives me crazy. I guess I hadn't thought about his role too much, but yeah, he he doesn't bring a lot. I mean, you know, Sarah and Laszlo are such lightning rods in themselves, and he's... Yeah, you're not far off the mark there, Mike. Yeah, his whole thing is to be outraged or to be drunk or to be outraged and drunk. And now we've added also kind of poor, maybe, at, at, you know, in the season. So he's poor, drunk, easily offended. He's a gold digger in this episode. Yeah, a little bit. Would Grandma cut him off? What happened? I that? don't know. And and I feel like, you know, John and Sarah's moment, what has that passed? Where he's landed, had it was a little shocking to me. I was not super impressed by Ms. Violet Hayward. I think I had the same impression of her as, as Lazo did, though I did think the fact that she had her little yappy dog, Mrs. Bam Bam, in Delmonico's was pretty funny. Because that is a type of person who you could find if Delmonico's was open. It's currently closed because of uh, Rona. But if if you were at Delmonico's, that's the kind of thing that you would maybe still see today. Oh, that was so infuriating to watch. I'm like, I hate women because of that. <laughs> it's like you're making a bad name for the rest of us who are definitely hardworking and not vapid. Let's get into the episode because John definitely seems hard up for money. So it definitely, we didn't really learn much about it. He's writing for the New York Times. So he's got a job. He has this fiance who seems to be rich, but he definitely seems uh, hard up for cash. He asked the Mater D to let him slide on the bill. And luckily, you know, Violet had already said she was going to pay for it. So, woof, you know, do dodge a bullet there. But John is supposed to be loaded. He's from the Schuyler family, the Schuyler Moore family. And we met grandma a bunch last year and she's certainly loaded. So where did John's cash go? I wonder if he's on the outs with his family. Did he print something that family disapproved of? I don't know. But he's definitely hard up for money. And the look of relief on his face when the Mater D said that his lunch was covered was definitely, whew. Uh, he's not the only character who's kind of like down in the dumps. I think we're about a year from where the Beecham case ended, where season one ends of The Alienist, uh, maybe a little bit less than a year. We see Laszlo right away, and he is all sad face because of the Martha Knapp case. But let's talk about Sarah first. Were you surprised that she has left the police agency and has opened up her own detective agency? Not at all. She was getting bamboozled in the police department, although she was holding her own, but it's just not the right fit for her anymore, I guess, after what she endured during the Beecham case. So I like the fact that she broke out on her own. And, you know, the, I guess the company she was keeping was better than her clientele. So she didn't seem all that happy to me either, even though this was her own detective agency, that this was her own kind of gig, but she just didn't seem 
to be in a good place. Unhappy with her clientele. We, we learned Sarah Howard is someone who is very much like Laszlo Chrysler, you know, likes puzzles, wants to put on the detective hat and really detective. And it seems the way she was talking about her clients who are mostly old, bitty women. These are not the kinds of cases that she had hoped to be taking. So she definitely seems restless. She seems like it was maybe a grass is greener situation. But when we learn that Teddy Roosevelt has moved on, he's now the assistant secretary of the Navy, like you mentioned, um, maybe that is a little glimpse into why it was time to go. I think Teddy probably afforded her more latitude than a woman who had just been his secretary up to that point was probably afforded in 1896, 1897. So maybe she had to go or else she would have gone back down the ladder once he left office. Right. Because I feel like the police department at that time was ripe with like the, the Burnses of the world. Oh, that guy. I can't believe he's back again. He's the worst. Back again and doing like promotional tours for the electric chair. I mean, this guy is the absolute fucking worst. He's stealing locks of hair of dead executionees and talking about how great the electric chair is. The electric chair was in use about 10 years at the time that this episode takes place, a little bit less than that. The first female executed by New York actually happens in 1899, and it's not Martha Knapp. It's a woman named Martha Place who, by all accounts, did, in fact, kill her, her child. It was a stepdaughter? Daughter. It was a, step- it was a stepdaughter, teen mm-hmm. stepdaughter, and definitely murdered her. It seems Martha Knapp maybe got a raw deal and maybe didn't do something to her baby. Maybe did. We don't know yet. But Martha Place, the first woman executed by New York in 1899, definitely seemed to be the one who did it. But a nice nod from the show to use Martha as a common name for both first female executions. And consistent with the times, too. So that was good. Let's go back to Sarah's detective agency for a second. It seems not only are all of her clients old women, it seems all of her employees are young women and and maybe certainly girls. There definitely seems to be some young females in that office, but it seems to be all females. Does that surprise you at all? And kind of hand in hand with this, we learned that Sarah is a early suffragette. Uh, She's making posters. She's headed to the protest with her women's suffragette protest posters at the execution of Martha Knapp. Did any of those things surprise you about Sarah Howard? Not at all. This I feel this is so consistent with the Sarah that we learned and how she developed in season one for us. I find it completely realistic that she would hire all women, that she would be mentoring and fostering women empowerment at a time where she was trying to be taken seriously. So the fact that she had aligned herself with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and her storied history at that point, because Elizabeth Cady Stanton actually died in 1902. So by 1897, where we're picking up the story, she's already had quite a long career and her credentials are a mile long with between all the suffrage movement that she was fostering, the women's rights, even before it was truly known as women's rights, but just more equality. So the fact that she was fostering this and keeping this type of prestigious company was very much the Sarah that we we got to know in season one. So I was actually I was actually proud to see that this is where she was going with her with her character. Totally on the mark for her character and a nice tie into it, the real time. You know, like you said, Elizabeth Stanton, it's almost like passing the torch from the early pioneers like Susan B. Anthony and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton to, to someone like a Sour Howard, uh, who obviously is fictional, but you could very much imagine would be a bright light in that movement for the years to come because women are still many years away from earning the, even the right to vote. More than 20 years at this point. We already did a love it or leave it on the Women's Equal Rights Amendments. The Mrs. America podcast. Shameless plug. Available at podclubhouse.com. Before I move on, and even though I said this is not going to be a podcast that says in the book, this happens, I will say It has to come out sometime. I, I don't know if it'll be true, but if it is, it's a nice piece of continuity from season one. The book mentions that Sarah's detective agency is located inside the headquarters that Team Chrysler used to work the Beecham case that she took over the lease for their team headquarters and moved her detective agency in there. So I don't know if they're going to cover that in this season, if that's going to turn out to be like canon for the show. But if it is, it's a really nice little hat tip that that place where they spent so much time breaking that case kind of still lives on in in the form of Sarah's new new detective agency. I feel that that did happen because later on in the show, without giving too much away, when, when Chrysler is basically profiling her in the office, he's he's mentioning that it's very much her personality. So it's quite possible. The mention of Elizabeth made me realize that Teddy Roosevelt was our resident, well, one of our two main resident 
real historical people who we interacted with frequently in season one of The Alienist. The other one, I'd say the most frequent real person from season one, I would say, was, uh, you know, John Piermont Morgan, G.P. Morgan. It seems to me that Elizabeth Cady Stanton is going to fill that kind of role this season, uh, a real historical person who seems to insert into the story. We saw her twice this episode. She's very connected to the high society, obviously. So it'll be interesting to see how she works, whereas Teddy was a connection that, that Laszlo and John both really share. Now, I guess Sarah, too, she worked for him, that they all seem to share, had a relationship with Teddy Roosevelt. Elizabeth seems like the kind of person who has a relationship with Sarah, but we see here really wants to use Sarah to get to Laszlo. What was your take on on Sarah smacking down Elizabeth, trying to use her to get to Laszlo and say, I'm the woman you need. You need a woman for this case and you need a detective. You don't need an alienist. What did that do for your feminist hair on your arm to make it stand oh up? Oh my God. It was like, you know, Spider-Man with the Spidey senses. It was, it was up because she just commanded that scene so much. and was basically like, you need a woman. You need a woman who's got the expertise that I have. The way that she just shut the discussion down was like, I will call for him when I decide that I need him. Period. On the sentence. We're done with that. that. That's just Sarah. And the fact that she's finding her voice even louder than she did before. I just feel like everyone for this season better clear out of the way. She is really coming to her own. We saw the flashes of her really having a Chrysler-like detective mind last year. I mean, she actually ended up putting together a lot of important pieces for Laszlo to then build off of. She really exhibited so much of the kind of forensic psychology, like like instinctual forensic psychology that he has. She exhibited with no training, no formal training in the, and she was kind of a natural at it. It's great to see that a year on, now in her own space, she not only has those abilities, which we're going to see in a minute in the episode, but she has confidence to back it up. She's, she is even less of a wilting flower than she was last year. Not that she was a wilting flower last year, but she was much more hesitant to speak up for herself. She was more timid, yeah. This episode starts with her screaming and full of the crowded courtroom with basically only two women in it, Martha Knapp strapped to an electric chair and Sarah Howard. The rest are all men and she has the ball. She's the only one. You know, even Laszlo is hanging his head. Does not want to look, right? Yeah. No, being all defeatist, can't look. It's just telling Sarah, you know, we've lost this battle. John obviously is a fucking coward and not wanting to say anything. He's like her arm candy as <laughs> she's, you know, raging against the wind. He's really like a male Kardashian. That's what John Moore is. Oh, that's that's bold. You're not wrong. Takes up space and really just it like makes himself known when they when wants to whine about something, but it's Sarah who's like stop and proceeds to rightfully shame all of these penis waggers about you have no proof against this woman you don't even have the dead baby that you're accusing this woman of having murdered you don't even know if the baby is dead you're just assuming it is and you're putting putting this woman to death like shame on you what is happening here you know that's what Chrysler is thinking but he's so defeated from the time he spent with Martha he can't even muster that argument anymore we learn through some flashbacks that his time for making those arguments seems to have come and gone but Sarah still has that fight in her and so we see that in the very beginning of this episode and then we see her here with Elizabeth and Mrs. Linares, you know, saying you need a detective, not an alias. That's me. And you need a woman who understands this because you are already behind the eight ball being a woman and, you know, having a missing baby. The male cops are not going to come to your, your aid. They're not going to help you with this because they don't really care. This is our realm. And this is why you need me. I love that. I loved her defense of herself. Yeah, I just thought it was great when she bursts out that a little rebellion every now and again is a good thing. Burns dismissing her as quoting anarchists. And she's like, no, that was Thomas Jefferson. So, you know, here's everyone dismissing her as a hysterical female. And meanwhile, she's quoting, you know, the author of our founding documents. To quote Hamilton from Cabinet Rap Battle number one, these are wise words and comprising women uh, quote him, don't act surprised, you guys, because I wrote him. So that's a little Thomas Jefferson from Hamilton talking about Sarah Howard, obviously. All very topical. With Hamilton having come to Disney Plus very recently. Before we get into baby Anna, let's talk about Martha Knapp. And you mentioned Laszlo coming to see Sarah and just being super down in the dumps. Every time we've seen him in the beginning of this episode, uh, he's just been this real hangdog kind of guy. And understandably, I mean, he tells John, Martha Knapp hired me to find her baby and I failed her. He is putting the execution of Martha Knapp squarely on his shoulders for right or for wrong. That's the burden he's placing upon himself. So that being the case, I was surprised that 
he does not take Sarah up on her offer of the detective agency. She says right out, right? She's like, this agency is available to you to use in finding her baby. And he kind of puts her off. Why do you think that he is kind of standoffish with her and then doesn't jump on her, her offer of assistance? I'm not sure. I don't know if it's just that he, like you said, he's bearing the brunt of failing Martha. I, I think he feels that, you know, it's his fault he didn't find the baby. It's his fault that she got electrocuted. I just don't know if he's just given up. Maybe he just doesn't know if he can bear the what lies ahead, the unknown, if you will, with going forward and finding this. I don't know if he has the, I don't know if he's come out of that funk. I just don't know if he's out of that. I think he's definitely in a funk. There's some stuff here just that we know happened in season one, you know, though I think he has undeniable chemistry with Sarah Howard. They never really put the two of them next to each other like I think they should have. Uh, like I used to ship anyway. But they did put him together with Mary Palmer, his maid for all intents and purposes, at the time who was killed in the course of season one. Not too much time has passed. So I think, I don't know that we can discount that, that he's still feeling the effects of Mary's death, which was pretty visceral for him. But also in the flashbacks we get to Night of Laszlo, we see him at the appeal arguing against Dr. Marco, who is still around here in the present, that he's not an alienist. He's not equipped to make the diagnose about Martha Knapp and her psychology that the court is resting on, that she was convicted on. And it's falling on deaf ears and it's a very crowded room and, he, and Laszlo loses. He loses the appeal and her execution goes forward. Fast forward to when we actually see her execution. I don't think Laszlo is used to losing. He, his instincts are so correct. And during the reign of Teddy Roosevelt, he was able to use the police force to really wield his way to give him room to prove his theories true. All of that has kind of dried up here. The, the effect of Teddy leaving is felt a lot in this episode, I think. Maybe more so than the show even attended to really hammer home. He was a big crutch for them to rest on. He gave them a lot of room to operate because the, the rest of his police, his actual police force, were so corrupt. I think Laszlo just doesn't know how to deal with the losing of it. So not only is he putting his her death and the failure of finding the baby on his shoulders, I think he's also dealing with, well, he's still dealing with the loss of his love. And he's dealing with loss, like losing the case, losing them not being convinced by his arguments. And this is someone I think who definitely rests on the power of his intellect. Maybe he's just so shattered by all of that that he just doesn't know how to, to go forward. Because when you frame it as quickly and as you know the way that you just summarized that you know so eloquently it just it really drives home a point that this is a broken man you know he hasn't had a lot of time to recover from the death of his his maid his partner you know he he's off of the high of figuring out the beecher murder and now he's in this new world where he doesn't have that same room to breathe maybe his confidence is just shattered from it and that's why he's kind of putting sarah off i think it's something we definitely have to keep an eye on because this is not like him he he's definitely an introspective man he is a quiet man we actually got a little bit of humor with him and stevie in this episode you know unexpected it was out of character but welcome and it was actually pretty funny about time wasted the, the the beauty of the human mind. But he wasn't introspective in this episode. He was depressed in this episode. And that's not a state that anyone is going to benefit with Laszlo Chrysler being depressed. Not when there are babies to find and save and lives to save and cases to solve. To, let's switch to Sarah and to baby Anna. First, Mrs. Linares gets explicitly told by her husband, don't leave the house while I'm gone. These gringos are fucking crazy. They all want to kill us. We're going to war. Don't leave the house. So, of course, Mrs. Linares Nars takes the baby and leaves the house, goes and like kind of passes out at the outdoor cafe and then acts like she was drugged. What was that whole scene with her? I don't know. That, yeah, it was weird. Yeah, she wakes up and she's kind of disoriented. She's startled. She falls asleep. And why would you fall asleep when you have a baby around? That's insane to me, too. I mean, listen, this is going to sound really bad. I don't get the feeling that she's the prime caretaker of baby Anna. But when you're a new mom and you have a young baby, yes, you can fall asleep anywhere. When my, my son was very small, I fell asleep on the toilet. <laughs> that might be TMI, but yes, it can happen. Yeah, but it wasn't a toilet in an open market uh, no, where, no. where anyone can walk and steal your baby. It wasn't Fair. like you had, even in New York, I think you're hard pressed to find an open air toilet in a palazzo. It might be an art piece. Who knows? It's New York. It's true. It's true. <laughs> the way she's going home, and, and she definitely feels like she's being watched, right? Which which the actress does a great job of conveying that feeling. I really liked how disorienting that whole scene felt. Like she just jarred awake. 
the soldiers, you know, woken her up. He wants a dime. And then, you know, she, you know, runs home. It just how disorienting. And she sees the flash of the, the newspaper photographer on the other side. And then you, you do get this sense that she is being watched. I think that was a very well done scene. And it really sets you up for what's about to happen. Brutacusi is the actress. And yeah, I agree. She does a great job conveying the disorientation and and doing all the scenes. But it was so weird. What, was she drugged? Was she being set up? I don't know. Or just being paranoid in New York. But just the way the camera was moving around her, the, it was kind of out of focus. It was kind of blurry. It was it was very disorienting. But this show always kind of keeps you on your toes. You never really know where it's going to go, right? I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that. But let, let's fast forward to that night. How freaked out were you when she pulls the covers back on her baby? I, I mean, I obviously knew that the baby wasn't going to be there. It was so well set up that I just knew the baby was gone. But when I saw that goddamn doll, so I, you know, girl, play with dolls when I was a kid. I always hated with all the fibers in my being the dolls that had the eyes that move when you put them in a horizontal versus vertical position. So the fact that this was one of those dolls and then the way it was made up just made it so much more horrifying for me. I didn't even pick up on the fact that that's what was wrong with the eyes. It just looked like someone had like taken like black marker or some kind of like like burned out the eye sockets to me. And Somebody then, like, like Annie Lennoxed that baby doll. Yeah, the, with the blood, with the fake, the simulated blood coming out of the mouth and the darkened eyes. It made my stomach flip a little bit. Um, there, there's a plot line in Perry Mason, the, the reboot series on HBO, that gets into dead babies, which I was kind of shocked and horrified by and really actually kind of bothers me. So watching that show and now coming over to The Alienist and we're dealing with the same thing out of the mouths of babes. I, I don't know, but TV has taken a turn against babies. It's not it's cool. Dark. It's dark, man. What do babies ever do to you? God damn it. But uh, fast forward even further and Sarah gets a call from Elizabeth and she comes to the Lenaris household. I loved loved seeing Saver break down this crime scene. Uh, walk me through uh, what your feelings were watching her kind of go to work here. This was absolutely her tapping into those innate skills that she had. She's walking around and she, you know, she figures, she knows that the staff are lying, that the windows had to be open because it was so hot. You know, her walking through saying it wasn't these windows. And then she asked Bitsy to give her a boost so that she can look to see where things are. So she figured out that this one window was where the perp stepped in order to gain a foothold to get up to the room where the baby was. And then she figured out the getaway. So this was just her surveying it and very much seeing the lay of the land as the perpetrator. And she knew exactly. They went down the alleyway. They busted open the garden door, down the alleyway, out into Fifth Avenue, and they could be anywhere in New York, she says. And that secret gate that looked like no one really knows about that gate. I mean, that the fact that she found it, she she hunted it down with a real keen eye. But even before that, in, in the baby's room, when she's talking about how it looks curated, when she says that word curated, and she said it looks like a work of art, like someone is presenting the baby doll this way. Staged. It seems so much like the way Laszlo would approach crime scene. And again, it just really reinforce this fact that and it was such a nice continuity and further developing of the character from the last season she really is a student of his and maybe in some ways she has an empathy that he kind of lacks it makes her even more effective i think as a detective because she has his calculating forensic mind but she also is a functioning human being who can interact with other human beings in a, in a way more easily than laszlo can and it really makes her like the next evolution like the laszlo 2.0 is kind of what sarah is and i think you really to see that on display here also when she says give me a boost bitsy i started laughing it was amazing yeah you could tell just by the fierce looks on their face they are dedicated to sarah they think she is this paragon to look up to as she is and they should but you know bitsy's there to give her a boost up bitsy is a hardy woman bitsy's she, she knows how to use her hands <laughs> She's she is a female Cyrus to a large extent. Can you imagine what a Cyrus bitsy baby would look like? That would be a <laughs> that would be a formidable child. <laughs> you know, I agree with what you said about Sarah having the empathy that Laszlo doesn't seem to be able to convey. The point that I want to bring this back to is actually in the execution room before Martha's executed. Laszlo has his eyes down. He is not looking. Sarah is looking at what is happening, the humanity that is happening before her and the complete lack of humanity that got them to this point. And she's got tears in her eyes. So, you know, he's not able to look for a number of reasons, but she's there and she is watching what is happening to this woman. So she's got that connection as well as having those those skills, that, that study of Laszlo that you mentioned. But she's also got 
something that he doesn't. I'm glad that it's episode one of the season and we're already getting to see it too. Because that tells me that we're only going to build on there. And and if these two can link up and really start to work together, if I was a criminal, I would be quaking at the idea of Sarah, uh, Sarah this evolved version of Sarah and Laszlo, if he can get his sad face head out of his ass, teaming up and, and trying to crack a case. And I guess you have John there too, whining about something. Is there anything freakier then rows of dolls, whether it's in someone's house, especially if they're porcelain dolls, it, it always freaks me out. And when when little Eloise goes to the Siegel Cooper store and picks up this dolly on the row of dolls and the, and the thing and realizes it's a real baby, I jumped just as she screams and we cut to commercial. Oh my God. Ugh. First of all, I always hated the dolls that had the dead eyes. You know, I watched Jaws recently again with my seven-year-old son. They talk about like the dead eyes of a shark. Those are the same eyes that are in these dolls. And they freak me the fuck out. That's actually a terrifying scene. And I jumped legit when she screamed because I knew what she was holding. It was gross. And just less of those dolls, please, alienist production crew, because that that gives me the heebie-jeebies. Listen, Dead Babies is really next level disturbing. I, I, I'm surprised that the show went there. So early, so early. This is about halfway through episode one, maybe three quarters of the way through episode one. You're, this is what you're giving us? This is not. This is where shows build to, and you're starting off this way. Holy fuck. What, like, where what? are we going to be by episode six? Right. Where is the show going? How, like, how much worse can it get? I mean, you're, we've got a dead baby, right? From Martha, there's a dead baby. And because the baby's missing, there's been no body. Now Martha's dead. So, you know, female execution, that's also pretty horrific. And now we have a dead baby in a store. Just a moment on on that execution, too. I know we, we well moved on from there already. But I have in my notes, watching that scene was so disturbing. And you don't really get a lot of visceral shots of electrocution terror, election, uh, electrocution, especially not on TV. But even movies kind of cut away from it because it's a disturbing thing to watch this show like clockwork oranged you you're you know pinned your eyes open and made you watch it and i wrote in my notes i can smell it yes. uh, through the tv when i was watching this with the screeners and literally laszlo says when he sees john is that he couldn't get the smell out of his nose the the smell of the flesh out, uh, out of his nose it, that's how visceral it was. That's how realistic and it felt watching it. I had in my notes the same thing this character says he experienced in the courtroom. It was horrific to watch. I just, oh, like you said, you can smell it. And the comparison to A Clockwork Orange is spot on because they were just on Martha as she was cooking. And then they have to crank up the volume on the electricity because it just wasn't enough. It was just gross. Let's talk about Martha Knapp and the baby. Isaacson's return, uh, return to the show, and I was very happy. I love Yay, Lucius and Marcus. I love them. They let Sarah into the crime scene, even though they shouldn't. She tells them to get Laszlo involved. He comes later on that night to the autopsy, and they talk about the causes the brothers reiterate for us and for, for him, even though we heard him say earlier that they think the baby was poisoned because there's toxic abrasion in its mouth. That seems to be the, the cause of death, but Laszlo feels for a contusion that he was aware of that Martha's baby had, like an injury, basically, it had. And so he identifies Martha's baby. And so this baby that he was unable to find for the mother who he was unable to save from being murdered is now dead. And to talk about the burden upon Laszlo, you can feel the curtain kind of falling down over his eyes even further in this scene. How long before Laszlo really gets gets going here, do you think, and, and teams up to try and save baby Anna? Are we going to watch him have to wallow for a while? Or what's your what's your pick here about whether or not he gets going pretty fast to help her? I think Sarah's going to be the one to kind of like snap him out of this. I think she's going to basically tell him his time for wallowing is done and that there's a baby out there that needs him and needs their team to, to find her. I think that's going to be Sarah that slaps some sense into him. I like that. I think that makes sense. And consistent with the one of the only people who could really get through to him. More so than even John. There, there's actually a really funny scene at uh, Delmonico's where... Laszlo comes and, and the entire scene at Delmonico's is basically just to see Laszlo make fun of Violet and call her vapid and tell her that she's shallow. I love that scene. But I digress. Laszlo goes to see Dr. Marco, who we know was the doctor from the opening scene with, with Martha, who's screaming about her baby being missing. We see him in his office and he's also the one who testified against Martha in the flashbacks that Laszlo lost to, that we see Laszlo chastising about not being an alienist and not not knowing what he's talking about. He goes to see him at the lying hospital because that's where Martha was living before she's executed at Sing Sing. Dr. Marco doesn't want to see him, refuses, you know, refuses to see him. 
but says in the process to the nurse that Martha Knapp needed to be made an example of. Does that make Dr. Marco the, the criminal here? Is he, or is this just a red herring? Martha said something in the very beginning, the opening scene, and she screams out for Dr. Marco when she realizes that her baby's missing. And she says, I know what's going on here. She says, you know that I know what's going on here. I'll call the police. She knows something. So she does have to be made an example of, because whatever Dr. Marco, a.k.a. Bruce Bolton from Game of Thrones... <laughs> It was good it to was, see him again. Yes, it was. But just the fact that he had the same kind of, you know, mannerisms and characteristics of the character he played in Game of Thrones, it was just, I can't see him do anything else, basically, at this point. I don't think it's a red herring. I think she knows something that's going on, and he's up to something sinister. The lying in hospital, which was a real thing in New York. That's what the, the wrought iron gate says at the beginning, and then we see it more clearly in the daytime when Laszlo goes to visit Dr. Marco. The lying in hospital. This was a, a real place, and interestingly... There were a couple of them in the 1800s, but the one that we're talking about now was actually funded by uh, J.P. Morgan. He was a patient of uh, Dr. Marco, a real Dr. Marco, who apparently is spelling their name differently than the one in this show, but a real uh, a real patient of Dr. Marco. And he was responsible, I'm reading from the Weill Cornell uh, website, John Piermont Morgan, an affluent patient of Dr. Marco, was responsible for the next important advance, the purchase of, in 1894 of the Hamilton Fish Mansion on 2nd Avenue and 17th Street to be used as the lying-in hospital. This was later expanded towards 18th Street. In 1899, the facilities were overtaxed and the need for a larger hospital was evident. The generosity of Morgan made possible the demolition of the mansion and the construction of a modern eight-story hospital that opened in 1902. The lying-in hospital eventually went on to become the obstetrics and gynecology department of New York Hospital and it's part of the Weill Cornell hospital system now. There's J.P. Morgan's name again. We talked about him a little bit earlier as one of the kind of behind-the-scenes characters from season one. We have this real-life connection between J.P. Morgan and Dr. Marco in the lying-in hospital. Seems like we're not done with J.P. Morgan yet. That's a lot of cool symbiosis right there. I just like the fact that we're dealing with a real Dr. Marco. I I don't know anything about him. I haven't done research into him yet because I don't want to be too, too spoiled. I want to kind of experience it as the show goes on. But I think it's really interesting that the lying-in hospital was built with Morgan money and involved Dr. Marco. And it still exists today. It has landmark status. It's over there in like Stuyvesant Square. When we can, it can be visited. Not much more here. I mean, so like like we said, the dead baby is not baby Anna, is not little baby Linaris, but it is Martha Knapp's baby. So we can take that one off the board. We still don't know who the person doing it is. Maybe it's Dr. Marco. Maybe it's a red herring. We don't really know yet. There's not a lot to go on here. But what did you think of Sarah stealing her employees, telling them that this is life and death girls and, and, and preparing them for what's really their first case? No matter how long her detective agency has been open, this is clearly their very first real case. Was she talking to, to her employees here or was she really trying to convince herself of the seriousness of the nature. Oh, no, I think she knew exactly how serious this was. I mean, you have a missing baby. They graduated very quickly from my servant might be stealing my silver spoons, which Mrs. Shermelhorn came to visit early on in the episode. So they graduated very quickly from the servants are stealing the silverware to the kidnapped baby of a diplomat. So I think the fact that she was so blunt with them was her saying, you guys need to know how serious this really is. The last thing we need to talk about is when the group is together and they're talking about working on the case. They're talking about the memento mori, the reason for the paint around the eyes to, to make it seem as if the eyes are open, the, the illusion of life and the idea of the memento mori, which is Latin for remember that you have to die, an artistic or symbolic reminder of the inevitability of death according to Wikipedia anyway. These dolls are used to kind of keep the the idea of a child who has passed on, in this case with this doll, is being used to keep the idea of the child alive. But also Chrysler talks about how the killer is using it to disassociate. The idea with the doll is kind of to like disassociate from the crime that they're committing. What did you think of this early? This is the early profile. This will be something, if, it, if it's like season one, we'll get a continually deepening and deepening of the profile. But what was your take on this killer is in pain profile that we get here at the end of the episode? I think Sarah nails something on the head that we need to pay a little bit of attention to as this goes on. She says that the framework of the doll allows the killer to to love the painting of the eyes and things like that, that, yeah. that all of yep. this allows the killer to love. So whatever warped scenario that this person who 
finds that they have to use their outlet for killing to kill babies. Whatever got that person to that point, somehow the act of killing that baby with replacing with the doll in whatever twisted world that this person lives in is the mechanism that this person uses to love. It's very warped. So it's going to be interesting to see where they develop. So the profile is beginning and, you know, they say the let's begin and things like that. And you you know that they're out on their next adventure. But Sarah says something too. She says this person is untethered and diabolical. That just sent chills down my back. I don't know what that did for you, but that definitely set a tone for where this is going. As if prior 55 minutes had not been bad enough, now we get untethered and diabolical and the person has to kill a baby and, you know, curate a doll in order to show love. I am not feeling the warm and fuzzies for the next couple episodes. No, I mean, people, we're we're in episode one and we're poisoning babies, burning their mouth. We're painting up dolls so that they can love and kill. And we're, we're killing babies, people. Like, not just one baby. I don't think Martha Knapp's baby is the first baby killed here. That's never how these things are. It's going to turn out there's like a pit of babies somewhere. That's what episode six is, the pit of babies. This is serious. This is dark. This is not for everyone. This is the kind of season of a show that is going to be great and is going to be riveting and it's going to be well executed, but it is not for everyone. This is the kind of series that should really have like some kind of like warning, maybe disturbing to viewers before it, because... A hundred percent. This needs a warning. This is not just like a Law & Order SVU where there's dead bodies all the time, but it's so desensitized in how it handles it. You're so desensitized in how you view it. This is real, like real gets to the core of it, real makes you wince and, and makes you, you know, throw up in your mouth a little bit, makes you close your eyes and look away. Really hard stuff to digest. But the show is going there. So, I mean, I'm, I'm in for the ride. I just wanted to make one final comment on kind of the last scene before Sarah says that, you know, we must begin. We see the baby, presumably baby Anna crying. What did you think of the little prison crib? It was a crib, but it had like mesh wire around it. Like the baby was going to crawl out. I was so, I'm, I'm trying to search for the word. I was terrorized. Let's put it that way. The, the fact that you had a several month old child. I mean, the baby had to be no more than three or four months old based on how she moved and things like that. To have a baby in a prison crib, the closest thing I've ever seen to that is in a hospital when a baby is having surgery, they have like these cribs that are on wheels and they come up, but they don't go over. So they're, they're not actually in a little prison crib. They're in a prison kind of wall or a crib wall, but it's not a prison. That was the closest thing I ever saw. I've never seen anything like that. This is like, to me, it looked like a refashioned chicken coop on top of a crib but it was it was spring-loaded like it all like all the pieces went together i was mm -hmm, terrorized mm -hmm. by this my instinct was to, to think it's like a prison crib which is kind of ludicrous because it's trying to keep uh, well you're, you're worried about the baby crawling out but while i'm sitting here thinking about it i realized maybe it's set up to try and keep someone from getting to the baby until such time as needs to be the next step needs to happen because that baby's going nowhere. That baby's too small. That baby cannot sit up on her own. There's there's no voluntary movement on part of the baby to go like I want to go right. from point A to point B. That's not happening. Not with that yeah, small the baby. baby. The baby is doing everything in that scene that a baby can do. And the baby that age can do cry, cry so, and wiggle its arms in like a in a turtle fashion. Like turtle mommy, style. come pick me up. That that's what I need. By the way, I mean I am a dad. I very much have a real base biological reaction to babies crying. It bothers me. I don't like the sound of it. And not in a it's annoying kind of way. I just don't like the sound of babies crying. It, it makes me worried. It gives me anxiety. It makes Same. my pulse quicken. It, it disturbs me. And so watch listening to a baby just cry at the end of this episode really just kind of set me on edge. And knowing that whoever has sprung the top of prison crib is reaching for this baby and the baby senses the danger. Like as a mom, and I'm not going to discount what dads know, but moms know their babies cry. Like I can be on a playground and hear my kid and be like, mm, that one's not mine. You know, when I hear a, a certain cry or a certain sound, when he was a baby, I could tell you the cry was hungry. The cry was poop. I could tell you the cry was whatever it was. To hear that baby cry like that was, oh my God, it just, it broke my heart into I, I don't know how many pieces. And just knowing what had happened to the baby 10 minutes prior, Martha Knapp's baby, did not bode well for me. So, yeah, like, I think we should warn people, like, <laughs> if you're in any way, like, in a postpartum, you know, way, don't watch this right now. Yeah. I do not years. recommend. I do not recommend young parents and especially young mothers uh, watch the show. Agreed. You will be in the. You will be in the hospital. You will need a lying in hospital of your own to go rest in. Hopefully, no, Doctor Marco. 
Not hopefully, or or his nurse ratchet that he had with him. Jesus, we didn't even touch on her. She's the looks that they were giving each other. I mean, they were Thug One and Thug Two. Before we go, I want to talk about History Corner, which I uh, kind of prefaced at the beginning. Thank God we have History Corner because we need to bring up the mood here. We already talked about Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the, the famous suffragette. I'm not going to rehash her. And we talked about the lying in hospital. There was one famous person who is introduced in this episode. We don't spend a lot of time with them, but I think we're going to, especially with the Spanish-American War as a backdrop, is the character of William Randolph Hearst. He is the person that we see working on the headlines for his paper, uh, the one that Burns comes to the offices of the New York Journal, and Burns comes and offers the lock of Martha Knapp's hair as a thing for the paper to give away, like a contest. Which, shit, man. Can you be creepier? You're walking around with this dead woman's hair. But he nailed it ahead of time, saying that, like, you know, people are going to want these kind of souvenirs. He's 100% correct, which is a total indictment upon us as human beings. Humanity, right. But but Burns is a piece of shit, and I dislike him. I mean, the actor is so, so good who plays him, which makes it even worse, because he's so unbelievably horrible as a person. This guy, he's diabolical. But so uh, William Randolph Hearst, again, is a real person. So it's another interesting thing, you know, especially with John working at the New York Times, I see maybe this is going to be a foe or an ally of some sort for John. I think this is going to be a John connection to the William Randolph Hearst character. He really did run the New York Journal from 1895, I think, into the 1937. And it was one of the main proponents of what came to be known as yellow journalism. These were the kind of early sensationalist papers, much more concerned with flashy headlines that would incite violence and riots than necessarily being factually accurate. They weren't so concerned about reporting the truth as reporting something that was going to get people's blood boiling. Following the sinking of the USS Maine in Cuba in early 1898, Hearst and the New York Journal, they were one of the major players in stirring up war fever in the country. We all learn in school the, the cries of remember the Maine. Uh, and on the back of that battle cry, the country went to war against Spain in Cuba in what became known as the Spanish-American War. And so William Randolph Hearst is really the father of yellow journalism. He founded what would become Hearst Communications, which remains even today a massive force in newspapers, magazines. They own a bunch of television stations and channels more than a century on, and his legacy still is alive today. Most famously, people may not realize, his life is what the character of Charles Foster Kane, the lead character in Orson Welles' classic film Citizen Kane, often cited as one of the best films ever from 1941, that movie is based on the life of William Randolph Hearst. I did not know that. Yeah, so William Randolph Hearst is a really interesting character in America. And and in America, I mean, I only give you a really small snippet of his life as relates to this very particular time. But he was a force in American culture and politics and media for like 50 years. He affected so much of what happened in this country, but no more so than his yellow journalism and bringing this country into war against Spain in 1898, a couple months after when this series is taking place right now. So after he dismisses Burns and sends him out with the lock of hair that he doesn't want, he says he needs the the brain monkeys downstairs to come up with a, a splashy headline about the Spanish spies bringing war to the U.S. shores. He wants to show that the U.S. is standing up to its bullies. Right. And, and again, and then just another way to close the circle on Linares and her husband, the Spanish dignitary and the, and the baby Anna. It makes you wonder, you know, Martha Knapp was not a Spanish dignitary, but it makes you wonder, is the kidnapping of baby Anna, is it politically motivated that this baby is the one chosen? How does the killer choose their babies? Why this baby versus all of the babies that are available in New York? Is it because the mom takes naps at the open air markets? I don't know. But with all of the Spanish-American war talk going on in this episode, I think you can't discount yet that maybe it's politically motivated, which which is like a whole other thing that the show did get into even in season one. You know, there was the Buffalo Soldiers and the Native Americans and that whole angle in breaking down the Beecham case. You know, so there was a political aspect even to season one that we don't really focus on too, too much. But it'd be interesting if the show expands its landscape to not just be a horror slash crime procedural, but if it, if it really delves into the politics of the time, the incitement to war. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting angle to be aware of. And, and the character of William Randolph Hearst, there's no reason to bring him into the story other than trumpeting it's time for us to go to war against Spain. 
the real place that I wanted to talk about was the Siegel Cooper store. And this is probably the most fun, lighthearted thing in this episode to end on. Originally in Chicago, the Siegel Cooper store opened its New York store in 1996. And so in this episode, we see two signs. We see a sign that says it's the largest store in the world. And we also see that it is celebrating its first anniversary and they're having a sale for its first anniversary sale. Both of those things were true. When the New York store opened, the Siegel Cooper store opened in New York, the New York store was the largest department store in the world. Kudos to the art department and the set decorators on this show for getting such nice details correct. If the store looked familiar to you, and if you've ever been in New York, the style of the store probably looked familiar to you. It's because the same architects that would go on to design the flagship Macy's store in Herald Square, the one that uh, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, the, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade marches in front of, that Macy's was designed by the same people who designed the Siegel Cooper store that we see in the episode and designed the real Siegel Cooper store by uh, De Lemos and Cordis. It's like a bow art style. So just really interesting that they designed this store. And then just a couple of years later, they designed this flagship Macy's store. And when that Macy's store opens, that becomes the largest store in the world. So these guys were just known for making big, big department stores. Located at 6th Avenue between West 18th and 19th Street, it was the equivalent of 18 acres of sales floor. It contained a grocery department, a barbershop, a theater, a telegraph office, an art gallery, a photo studio, a bank, a dental office, a 350-person seat restaurant, and a conservatory, which sold live plants. I cannot find any evidence that dead babies were sold there. Thank God. I guess that's a, guess that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, and a fun fact was that when the original Chicago store, the original uh, Siegel Cooper Chicago store closed, it reopened as the flagship Sears Roebuck store in 1931. So all sorts of connections with Siegel Cooper in the present with Sears and with Macy's. So just again, the show does such a good job of placing these these fictional events in real places involving real people on the fringe. So it's just something I really, really enjoy about the show. And uh, I hope you guys find that stuff kind of interesting. And yeah, there's actually one more place that we didn't talk about. It's mentioned so quickly that they're going for a pint at McSorley's. I have yes. a pint at McSorley's. I had McSorley's in my notes. And McSorley's is a classic bar <laughs> uh, that's, that still exists. Of course, Irish Sheila oh, would, come uh, on. Would, would pick that up. <laughs> I did have that in my notes. I did forget that. But yeah, you should have brought that up for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A, a great little hat tip to McSorley's, which again, still exists. And of and, course, Delmonico's. And uh, Delmonico's, uh, yes. Our, uh, our not- podcast namesake. Yes. And, uh, and uh, uh, within walking distance of when I do have an office to go to, within walking distance of that office. Delmonico's has great steaks. I have enjoyed every steak I've ever had at Delmonico's. Funny story, though. I had maybe one of the worst bouts of food poisoning ever from Delmonico's, from their Caesar salad. Oh, shit. Their Caesar salad dressing made me violently ill within like an hour of finishing a they lunch They probably there. used the raw eggs or something and yeah, yeah. for the Caesar it, it, salad dressing. I uh, Very clear. I had a client meeting there, finished there, walked back to my office. This is, ooh, this is probably 2005, 2006. Walked back to my office and was sick for like the rest of the day. Yikes. No yeah, so stay away. From, stay away from the Caesar salad. If the I'm sure it's opens. fine now. But, but the steak is great, and the ambiance. I mean, you walk into that place, and it is literally just walking back in time. So it's it's a pretty cool experience to go there if you ever get the chance. Agree. So let's do some guesses on where we think the season goes at the end of episode two, since TNT is dropping these as two-hour blocks each week. Yeah. Not happy that they're doing that. I want to spend more time with the show. And by the way, two hours is a lot of the show to take in one time, only because it's so heavy. Not because it's not good. It's just such heavy content. I don't know uh, if I can do two straight hours of dead babies back to back. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. We, we need to scale back the death count in this season. It wasn't great when it was male prostitutes, you know, young male prostitutes. It's a thousand times worse when it's uh, infants. But yeah, let's let, we'll do season guesses at the end of our next episode. And just so our listeners know, even though TNT is dropping these uh, two a week, we're still going to be doing one podcast episode for each episode. Because in the future, well, you're probably not going to watch more than one hour at a time because, again, really fucking heavy content. So we're going to do one episode per show. And hopefully it's a little bit easier to digest that way. But uh, I just want to say thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Meet at Delmonico's, the Alienist podcast, is an original production of Pod Clubhouse. Recorded, edited, and produced at Pod Clubhouse Studios. 
For more information, visit us online at podclubhouse.com.